Hello. Welcome to Witch's Kitchen. I am your host, Sarah Montgomery Campbell. Come in. So what are the things that we don't talk about? There's a lot, right? One of the things that you don't often hear talk of is dead babies. Those two words together, dead babies, that in itself kind of crashes into your nervous system. It could almost be considered an oxymoron. Babies are a symbol of, of life, hope, beginnings, innocence, the start of a journey, and death is the opposite. You don't hear people talk about dead babies because there's something in it that just seems to go against nature. But you know what? Dead babies come into this world every day. Every single day. There is nothing unnatural about stillbirth or perinatal death. It's incredibly common, more common than we would like to admit or, or that we care to realise. But we have to start talking about it. Because the mothers and fathers who experience the loss, the death of a baby during pregnancy or in the early stages of life, they need to talk about it. They need to be heard. It's not fair to make them feel like they're living with a dirty secret that nobody wants to hear about. So in this space, we're going to talk about it. Today, I am opening the door of the kitchen to a very beloved friend who is actually one of my heroes as well. I've got to say it. <laughs> um, I have known Lauren Petrie since I was 11 years old. So, about 30 years, Lauren. And. That's Giving our age away, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, it's nothing to be ashamed of. We get wiser as we get older, right? And we look good for our age, thank you very much. Well, you do. <laughs> well, you do too. <laughs> Bless you, darling. So, Lauren Petrie, welcome to Witch's Kitchen. Um, Lauren is a mother of two. She is a midwife. And she is a newly appointed bereavement midwife. I am. You are. 
Lauren, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. Hello, everybody. You are welcome. So, Lauren, what did you dream of being when you were little? Did you dream of being a midwife? Um, I remember, first of all, I wanted to be a cashier at Tesco because, you know, who doesn't love playing with till at home? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hello? <laughs> then when I was older, I wanted to be a physiotherapist, but only for men's football teams because I didn't want to deal with, you know, anything that wasn't fun in Disgusting. the process. Just touching muscly men. Love it. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't do very well in my A-levels, so I didn't go to uni and I kind of just got into work. And once you're making money, you know what it's like. You never go back really to studying at that age. Mm. And then it wasn't until I became a mother myself that actually it was while I was pregnant with Mia that I wanted to apply. Mm. And in the month that I applied, I also fell pregnant with Mia. And so I had to withdraw the, the application because I just thought, if I'm going to be a mum, I want to be a mum full time. I don't want to be struggling with uni and hats off to all the people that do it. I don't know how you do it. Mm. But I made the decision to kind of put a pause on it, be a mum and then go back to it, which is exactly what I did. Right. And when you went back to apply to university, that was to be a midwife? Yes. Yes. And is that what you'd always wanted to do? No. Be midwife? No. Okay. So what no. what was the decision to become a midwife? I think it was life experience, maturity, the prospect of being a mum myself. Mm. Um, and then when I did have Mia, I remember, you know, everybody always tells tales of having good and bad experiences in maternity. And one of the midwives was really amazing. And then one might come in and you think, oh, I didn't really gel with her. Mm-hmm. And I really felt like I I felt that I knew what it would take to be a good midwife to women. Mm-hmm. So that's really why I did it. Because mm-hmm. I thought I know the qualities that I wanted mm-hmm. and I know that I can give that to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So that's really why I became a midwife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're perfect. Um, I can still be a cashier. You never know. <laughs> you might want to. If you just want to play with a till all day, Lauren, you know. Yeah, I might just get myself a till. <laughs> So listen, so Mia was your first daughter and your second beautiful baby is Jada. Jada, will you tell us about Jada, Lauren? So Jada, I was a complete surprise and I had her, I got pregnant with her when Mia was about six years old and I was just over the moon because I've always wanted Mia to be a big sister. She's so amazing with other children. She's very loving. And I just didn't want to have um, an only child. I wanted her to have a sibling in the same way that I had and experience that relationship. Mm. And so the pregnancy was actually quite straightforward. I didn't have any issues apart from one episode of this, uh, what I would express as asthma. And I had asthma as a child and I felt like it was the same thing. Mm -hmm. And when it was investigated, they said, oh, it's panic attacks. And I thought, I know it was really odd and what was odd about it is that when they said it was panic attacks I thought okay whatever that's your diagnosis whatever they couldn't I couldn't put a thing on what that panic was about and neither could they offer any example and at the same time they also didn't offer me any help for that so I thought that was a bit odd that you didn't even offer any counselling if you are going to offer that Um, and they still sent me home with asthmatic inhalers so it was all a bit strange Mm. never really got to the bottom of that um But I should probably go back a little bit. At the very beginning of the pregnancy, 
when I went in for my booking appointment, which is what every woman has in England, I think it's probably the same in Spain. Mm. I went in and we were speaking about, you know, birth options and kind of pregnancy in general. And I'd had to have an emergency section with Mia mm -hmm. because I'd had thick meconium and it was a category two section, I think. It's not maybe a cat one, cat one or cat two. And it was quite traumatic in a sense that for anybody that's had an emergency section will tell you that feeling of having no control it being very kind of chaotic and noisy, lots of people in the room, all of the opposite of what I'd wanted my birth yeah, to be. The opposite of what any woman needs. I wanted like hammocks, whale music, candles, mm. quiet. Mm. And I got the opposite of that. Mm. And so when I was then talking about the pregnancy with Jada, even though it what appeared to be a low-risk pregnancy, I was really worried about not having that control again at the end. And mm. I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I'd have to have another emergency section because that's all I knew and that's all I could think of for this pregnancy. Yeah. And so I'd asked to have an elective section and I was denied. And I wish at the time that I had read from my nice guidance because I would have known that you can actually have an elective section from maternal request. But at the time, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, and when they asked me, why, what's the reason that you want to have this? Apart from all the reasons that I've already said, I also had this really ominous feeling about the pregnancy. Okay. And it was weird because in my head, I couldn't think where that thought had come from or why I was thinking like that. There was no indication for me to feel anything bad apart from my previous experience. Mm -hmm. And so the doctor said, you know, and it was the doctor that I was having this conversation with. She said, there's no medical reason. You're fit and healthy. Um, if you have a cesarean section this time, then you'll definitely have to have a cesarean next time. And we wouldn't even advise a third one anyway, which mm -hmm. we all know is not advised. And so mm -hmm. she kind of, I suppose, I know this doesn't sound very good, but she did kind of talk me out of it. She talked you down. So you wanted to have, you wanted to program your C-section for when? For like, for 40 weeks? If it's an elective, it's usually it's 39, 39 weeks. And that's what you, that was your choice, that's how you felt That was safe. what I wanted, yeah. Okay. Um, but the doctor, I think, tapped into the fact that I had wanted to have this before, this natural birth. And she kind of talked me into wanting that again and saying, you know, you can have a B-back, which is a vaginal birth after, after cesarean. cesarean, yeah. And I thought, you know what, maybe I should just go for it. Even though I was still feeling the way I was feeling, I still had this funny thought in the back of my head, but I thought, you know what, I owe it to myself as a mum to do that. I know that's a safe way of giving birth. Healthier for the baby, better outcome for both of us. So maybe I should just go with what the doctor's suggesting, which is what mm -hmm. I ended up doing. Mm -hmm. um, so the pregnancy progressed, as I said. I had that weird thing with the asthmatic stroke, panic attack stroke. Don't know what that was. Oh, yeah. um, which now, when we talk about it, maybe it still was that feeling. Who knows? Mm. Um, and that was around... I think it was around 32 weeks that I had that and I had to go into hospital and I was admitted and I had a nebulizer and then I got sent home with the inhalers. And then after that, the pregnancy still progressed as normal. Um, I went for my 40 week appointment with the midwife. So this is my due date. Yeah. And in England, when you get to that appointment, if you, there's obviously no signs of birth, then they will offer you induction, an induction date. Mm hmm. And at this point, I said, OK, I've gone the, the whole way through this. I've done everything you've wanted me to do. But if I'm going to be induced, I'd actually rather just have a section. Right. I don't want to do the induction because I got to two centimetres the last time. It was like what they call failure to progress, even though we all hate that word failure. Yeah. 
And so I just felt like I don't want to repeat that whole situation. It was awful having to do all the contractions, get to two centimeters, only turned up with the emergency section. I said, okay, if we're going to do it this time. I'm not doing an induction. I'm just going to go straight for the section. They said, fine. Okay. So the, the cesarean section <laughs> was booked. The day that I wanted it wouldn't have fitted in with Mia's lifestyle because she had a very important Easter assembly. And she said, you can't go and have the cesarean section the day before because I want you to go to my assembly. Mm. Okay. So yeah. I said, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it the day after Easter assembly. Perfect. Yeah. Everybody's happy. Yeah. And that would have made me, I think, 41 plus one. Okay. So still, still at term, still at term, not late. Still at term. Yeah. So now I am 41, 40, 39, no, 41 plus six is the day of the um, Easter assembly. So we go to school, everything's fine in the morning. I'm kind of rushing around. I felt Jada kicking that morning because mm -hmm. every morning Mia would come into my bed. She'd get into bed. As soon as she got in, Jada would start kicking. It's almost like she just knew that Mia yeah. was there. Yeah. So five five thirty that morning, as usual, Mia comes in, she starts kicking, fine. We all get up, have our breakfast, get on with our day. And I think in hindsight, when I, when I think back and obviously the movement, baby movement is such a big issue with stillbirths and understanding baby movement and being aware of it. And I don't think that I was very tuned into it that morning because I was so distracted by this big Easter assembly and getting me to school on time. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that I was going in for the section the next day, also thinking in my head, all the things that I need to do today, like the nesting was on 100, Sarah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we go yeah. to school, the assembly starts, assembly was beautiful. And then just towards the end, I start to feel contractions. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there in a hall full of people Mia's like loving it doing her bit on stage and yeah. I could feel these contractions I'm thinking oh my god what am I going to do I can't just get up and walk out she's going to kill me and, it, <laughs> she <didn't> kill me. <laughs> and because, it, because it just started I was thinking oh it's going to take forever anyway let me just chill I'll get I'll watch the assembly and then I'll go and sort myself out whatever the situation is and then literally five minutes later another contraction came mm. and and that that was having gone through birth already and knowing those early signs of labor so that's actually quite quick now and I'm feeling mm -hmm. it so mm -hmm. is, is this sooner on than I thought mm -hmm. and I caught eyes on one of the parents I think she could see me kind of wincing a bit and I said to her I'm gonna kind of sneak off just say say to me that I had to go to the hospital mm -hmm. and then by the time I got to the car they were literally coming every couple of minutes and I was thinking this is really odd so I called my sister wow. and it was it was odd because at that point when they're coming two minutes two three minutes apart you're usually in a lot of pain mm. you know you're usually at the point where you're getting ready mm. and I wasn't at that point they were coming frequently but I didn't have any immense pain it was so the whole situation to me was just a bit odd Mm. I phoned my sister and she said listen you need to go and get checked and I said well obviously I'm just going to pack my bag and go to the hospital so when I went into the hospital I was still contracting but they I felt like they'd eased off a little bit by now but because I was due to go and see the anesthetic team anyway to discuss the section for the next day I thought let me just go and get checked anyway I'll just go in a bit earlier mm -hmm. I went into the triage department and um midwife came over did the usual checks took my observations said okay I'm going to listen in for the baby mm -hmm. and she used just a handheld uh sonic aid we call them 
put the sonicade on and she couldn't find the heartbeat mm. and she said okay um let me just go and get another machine sometimes they're a bit dodgy and in her defense sometimes they are because i've had one are. where the battery yeah the battery's not working or it's had water inside it or something fair enough she went and got another one yeah and she came back with an actual um like a ctg machine this time not the handheld doppler Mm-hmm. so that she could actually see um with the transducer if she could pick anything up and she said oh this one isn't working either and when she said that I thought oh, like it's not it's not that it's not working something isn't right yeah. and then three machines later we still can't find a heartbeat and at that point I was thinking please can you just get somebody who can who yeah tell me what's going on yeah, yeah because it was just dragging on I was thinking this is ridiculous and I felt like this is wasted time because if something is wrong, I could be upstairs in the theatre having my baby whipped out of me by now. Yeah. Um, and so she called the doctor. The doctor came in and again used the the transducer, and she couldn't find a heartbeat. And she said, "I'm really sorry. We can't locate the heartbeat here, but can we go to the scan department?" Which again, I know this has happened to me before as well because it might be the baby's lying in a funny position and yes. we can't pick up the heartbeat and we just need to confirm everything. And I said, that's fine. And I went off in a wheelchair and in the back of my head, I was thinking, what if something is wrong? But I never, ever accepted that something actually could be wrong, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. I just thought something's obviously not right, but they'll just bring the section forward and I'll just have her a bit earlier. That's yeah. genuinely what I thought they were going to tell me. Um, and so we went up to the scan department and it, Sarah, honestly, it was the weirdest thing because it felt like, felt like he put the scanner on my tum- on my stomach. The sonographer put the scanner on and it was on for literally 10 seconds before he said, I'm really sorry your baby's died. And in my head, I was thinking, you haven't even scanned properly. Like, surely you just, like, you can't just tell me that after 10 seconds of scanning, it was... I was so shocked and it was like this moment from the matrix. I was, I remember as he was scanning, maybe part of me was scared of what he was going to tell me because I was looking in the opposite direction to the screen and any pregnant woman will tell you when anybody's scanning you, you're looking at the screen because you want to see your baby, but something made me look the other way. And I don't know, maybe that was my subconscious saying something's gone wrong. And as he said the words, I'm really sorry, Miss Petrie, but your baby's died. It was like this delayed reaction, like my head spun, but my brain was still looking out the window. Yeah. I could not compute what he said to me at all. And I just, the, the word that I always used to describe it is just an utter state of confusion. Mm. I didn't know what was going on. It had felt like such a short space of time that I've felt her kicking, got ready for school, gone in, started contractions. And then all of a sudden you're just telling me that she's died at 41 weeks yeah um and then what they did is they took me to another room and they talked me through what was going to happen and I said okay so can I just have a section because I don't want to I don't want to labor with her I just want it to be done I don't want it to be dragged out and the doctor said we can't we wouldn't advise she didn't say we can't so we wouldn't advise you having a section because kind of because of all those previous reasons that the doctor had said before you know this this has an implication for future pregnancy which I understood but in that moment I don't really care about rationale and justification I just want what I want please Mm. and and it felt like it almost felt like they were being horrible by making me go through it I felt like I was being yeah punished for it almost Mm. Mm. 
And so the doctor said, and also when you have a cesarean section, you have a scar. Um, and so it's a reminder that can be a reminder to you every day of what you've been through. And at the time I thought, well, I've already got a scar. So that's rubbish because that doesn't make any difference to me because yeah. whatever. Yeah. And also having gone through it eight years later, you don't need a scar to remind you. A scar does not remind you that you've lost a baby. Mm. It lives with you every single day. It doesn't matter what type of delivery you've had. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if somebody chopped off your left arm, that doesn't make you just think, Oh, that happened because I had a stillbirth. It's with you anyway. Yeah, it's with you anyway. So it was a, a bit of a poor excuse, really. Um, <clears throat> so fast forward, we went through with the, we started basically a syntocin and drip to keep the contractions going. I laboured. Because you, st- you were still experiencing, con- like your body hadn't stopped contracting and that was still going, right? It was just quite mild now. Yeah. Maybe that was probably because of all the cortisol and adrenaline that was rushing through me, just stopped mm. whatever oxytocin was going on. And they just kind of just calmed down. But because my labor had, because my contractions had started, the doctors thought it was appropriate to just start the, that kind of augmentation process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, my mum came to the hospital and the first thing she said when she walked in, and I, I'll never forget it, was she walked in and she said, things like this just don't happen to our family. Mm-hmm. And sorry, you know my family so well. Like, I do. Things like that don't happen to my family. They haven't yeah. ever happened. But... And I turned to her and I said, but mum, these things do happen, but nobody talks about it. Yeah, exactly. And that's the issue. A lot of families go through this, but we just don't talk about it. So everybody thinks, oh, this will never happen to us. And your mind doesn't even allow you to go there because it's Mm. not something that we're we're generally aware of Mm. enough. In the Mm. last couple of years, I think we have become more. But Mm. at that time, no, it just wasn't something you spoke about. And even antenatally, it isn't something that we speak about with women. We speak about monitoring. We speak about monitoring baby movements, but we never really say why. Mm, Do you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. It's a sign yeah. of baby being healthy, but actually it's also a sign of if they're decreasing that something is quite ominous is going on. And yeah. we, we, it's like we're afraid to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So it was, and then, So we carried on. I had seven people in the room with me which is some people are going to think that is crazy, but it was me, my sister, my best friend, Felicia, um, Jade's dad. Seven people that you had chosen to be there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Then that's good. (laughs) His dad, her dad, his son, his mum, and my other best friend, Earl, who was popped in and out to bring us food and drinks and things. Bless him. Um, And so, yeah, there was a lot of people in the room. And then they left at the point when I was getting ready to push. I said, when I'm pushing, I don't want anybody in the room other than me, Hal, and the midwife. And when when I was pushing, I remember saying, I just want it to be, it was almost like I was going back to what I wanted my original birth to be. Mm, That's beautiful. Quiet. I want it to be dark. I don't want any bright lights. I don't want any doctors in the room. I just want it to be minimal people. And so we were doing it. And then at the point where I was pushing, I remember I was on all fours. Mm. And I remember thinking, why, what, like, why am I doing this? Why am I pushing? And why am I going to put myself through all this pain mm. to get nothing at the end of it? And mm. all my motivation to push just literally left me. Mm. It was like I just, I just gave up. I was like, I'm not doing it. I've got nothing to push for. 
no, I've got no prize at the end of it. I've got no guess. Oh, is it a girl? Is it a boy? Nothing. Mm. And then the midwife, I don't remember what she said to me, but she basically just got me back to where I needed to be. And I turned over, so I was now in semi-recumbent. And I, and I almost felt like I did that because I knew at that point that this wasn't a normal delivery and I wasn't going to get the baby at the end. So why was I trying to make it like how I'd wanted it to be, this perfect birth? I kind of just gave up, mm. turned over, and I really went for it. And she said, and I could feel, oh, that ring of fire, I could feel it. <laughs> oh, my God. And she said to me, Lauren, and and as a midwife, this was very good of her part. But she said to me, "Listen, if you don't, if you don't really give it everything, I'm gonna have to call the doctor in because she knew that was the thing that I didn't want." Right. And I looked her in the face, and I just gave the biggest push ever, and then she was born because I was adamant that I didn't want to have an instrumental or anything like that. Yeah. I wanted it to be just about me and her. Yeah. And and now when I look back at it, I'm so grateful for that doctor for saying to me, no, you shouldn't have the section and you should do it naturally because now I've experienced natural birth. And yes, it wasn't the prize that I wanted at the end of it, but it was a different kind of prize. And, and she she's the only person in the world or baby that's given me that experience of the experience mm. that I really always wanted. Mm. So I feel like that was like a little gift from her to me to be yeah. a, and for us to be able to do that together. That's amazing. Oh, that mm. makes me sad. Oh, darling. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, the whole way through the labour, and whenever people, because I obviously do teaching now about bereavement care, and people always say to me, during the labour, what kind of things can you do for the woman? And it's really difficult, because when I was in labour, I just I kept flitting through these moments of being really confused, like, I thought I was having a baby and I was in labor and I was like almost happy. And then other moments of being like completely on the floor, crying my eyes out in total despair because it was like a flashback, like a kick in the stomach of somebody mm. saying, no, your baby's died. Mm. And you're reminded because they're not listening to the heartbeat. So you're like, Oh, why can't I hear the heartbeat? And then you think, Oh, because she's died. So that. yeah, it was awful. And I always say to people, don't ever assume that whatever you're walking into in that room is going to be what you expect it to be. Mm. Because people are so confused and, and they react differently to grief and you don't know what you're going to walk into. I remember at one point I was even laughing with the midwife about something. Mm. And I, and I look back and I think if somebody walked into that room, knowing they were coming into a room with a woman who's been told her baby's died and they saw me laughing, what would they think? Do you know what I mean? Oh, but don't judge yourself. I mean, and you can't judge yourself. But I think that's why I tell people when you walk in, expect the unexpected because you never know how that woman and that family are going to be reacting to it. Mm. It's impossible to know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There were some, there were some really good things that happened, and there were some really bad things. And so, in my previous job, I used to monitor standards of care for elderly people. Yeah. So Jada had been born, and this is where that kind of weird confusion comes in, because I remember her dad was holding her, and she had this little trickle of blood come out of her nostril. Mm -hmm. And obviously any parent that sees that would be freaking out if that was a live baby. But even, even though I'd known that she had, was dead and she was sitting in front of me, I said to him to wipe it away almost like it was just a bit of a runny nose a little, yeah. it was really yeah it was just the most surreal experience to to know that she was dead but in my head thinking that she wasn't dead but looking at her knowing that she is it was just awful 
and there were moments when I thought I saw her chest moving but it wasn't and and even my mum said I'm sure I can see her chest moving and I said mum it isn't it's just that you want it to be yeah because she was cold there was no movement so you 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 stayed she was with you you stayed with her once she was born yeah for 10 hours we stayed together for 10 hours yeah they don't really put a limit on on how long you can stay with your baby but we when I'm doing a delivery and and the baby's died I you never rush a woman to say okay we need to take the baby here or we need to do this with you you give the woman as much time as she needs but there does come a point where you kind of have to help somebody get over that hurdle to start making moves because the baby can deteriorate so badly. Right. And then the the parents are left with that vision. And I remember feeling like that. I can remember about nine and a half hours looking at her and she looked completely different to when, to how she had when she was actually born. Mm. When she started to change and she was changing color and, and she got puffy and she didn't look how she had when she was born. I knew in myself that was a time for us to go. Right. And I said, but I don't want to leave before her. So please, can you take her before you take, before I leave? It was almost like a protection thing, like as a mum where you wouldn't just leave your child behind in a, in a room somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. It was the same kind of feeling like yeah. you need to take her. And then when you've taken her and I know that she's okay, then I can leave. So that was... In, my, um, in those... Sorry, go on, sir. I was just going to say, it sounds like a really organic way yeah. to like rather than putting a time limit on things just allowing yourself to be with your baby and wait for the natural signs and to listen to your intuition about when is the right time nobody telling you when the right time is and nobody can tell you that as a health care professional I cannot come and say to somebody right Sarah it's time for you to go now Mm. now this this is the most horrific thing that can happen to a family why do we have the right to tell them when there's the right time to go that's mm. not that's not for us to do that and people react differently some people will say I want to give birth I want you to take the baby away and I don't want to see the baby again some people will say after two hours okay I'm ready to go now mm. some people at you know 12 18 are mm. still sitting there and it's at that point that you have to kind of say okay let's talk about the next steps because you have to kind of help to move them on a little bit, mm. but not force it upon them. And I was so grateful that I, I never felt like I was forced to do that. Mm. And it was in, it was in those actually those 10 hours that she, I remember I was in the bed and she was lying on my right side and I was looking at her and I was thinking there were so many good things about her birth and so many good things about the care that I received, but there were also things that I, that I think could have been done better mm. and that I didn't really agree with. And especially one of those things was the environment that we were in, which is the room. And it was because like her dad was, it was really cold. Her dad was lying in the corner on a little yoga mat. It was freezing. Oh and I was, I was okay. in bed with her. And I just remember thinking, this is, this is quite harsh. Like a man who's just lost his daughter mm. and he's lying on the floor on a thin mat in the freezing cold. It's not like, where's the humanity in that? It's horrible. Mm. So I wrote a list of all the things that I think they needed to improve on. And I gave it to the midwife thinking, oh, nothing will come of it. And they'll just think, yeah, that's a nice idea, but it's the NHS, so you kind of get what you're given. Mm-hmm. And then she called me up about a week later and she said, I just want to talk with you about some of the things you wrote down on that piece of paper for me. And I said, okay. Um, one of the biggest things was about having a better room and somewhere that people can actually be together. And I said, really, you need to have, I know this is the NHS, but you need to have a double bed for one, because 
it felt like, and I said this to the counsellor, I said, it feels like from that moment that he was in the corner and I was in the bed, that physical separation was so hard for us to come back together again. Right. It was almost like it set a precedent for the way that we were going to deal with the grief. And it did. And it did. Whereas if, we, if I feel like if we'd been together as one unit in a bed all together, just that physicality of being together would have kept us together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's so much to say for phys- the importance of physical contact. Yeah. And people really underestimate it. And it was so difficult for us to come back, I think, after that, because we just, we, it did separate us and then we carried on being separated. Yeah. And um, it was things like having a kettle in the room so that we didn't have to go out of the room to make tea and pass all the other babies and all the other dads that were showing off about their babies and things like that. And she said, well, we'd love to have it, but we, we don't have the means to, we don't have the funds basically to just do it. We want to do it, but we can't. And I, I remember putting the phone down. I said to her, I'll get you the money. And then I put the phone down and I thought, Lauren, what are you talking about? How the hell are you going to raise that money? What are you talking about? What and, this, you said you and this was a week This was a week after you'd given birth yeah. to Jada. Yeah. You, you said, I'll get you the money for that yeah. space. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't know who I was going to ask. I didn't know how I was going to get it. But I knew that I was going to get that money. And then one of uh, two of the mums from school, um, who are really good friends of mine, Sophie and Ingrid, they said, "Listen, why don't we?" I've, I've been speaking to them about it, and they said, "Well, why don't we raise the money?" And I was just like, "Oh my God, that's a, quite a big thing to commit to." Anyway, we did it, and we raised over ten thousand pounds. We oh. did a walk of Fabian's wall. It was hell. It was beautiful, but it was a labour of love. But <laughs> The same room that Jada was born in, which is room two on the labour ward, which is the hospital that I work in now, that same room is now called Jada's room. And so we transformed it. It's got a double bed, it's got a kettle, it's an ensuite bathroom, it's got sofa, reclining chair for other family members as well. It's got microwave and a fridge so family can bring you in food. Because that's one thing that families, they can't help you, but the one thing they can do is bring you things like that, a bit of comfort. So it's got all those things. And so, yeah, we did it in the end. God, Lauren, that's so powerful. I I knew that Jada's room had been created, but I did not know that that's actually where you gave birth to Jada. Yeah, yeah. And I never thought, I never, ever thought they'd call it Jada's room. I just thought I'd raise the money, they'd open some kind of room and that would be the end of it. I thought they'd call it... I don't know, the Dove Suite or, or some kind of name. And so when I went, actually went to the hospital, I didn't know it was called Jada's Room until I saw that plaque on the door. And I was blown away. And it was in that moment I really understood how important it is for her to have a legacy and how important it is when your child has died for them to still make their mark on the earth. Yes, they're not here, but they can still contribute. Yeah. And she has contributed massively now to this. So and much. I didn't realize. I just didn't realize how important it was until that moment. God, I've got I've got goosebumps. Oh, <laughs> I'm trying not to cry. Trust me. You can cry. Yeah, I'm trying not to cry. Either. You can <laughs> cry. You're allowed to cry as much as you want, Lauren. It's just sweet, isn't it? Because the way that I, I suppose, the way that I view it all is that this is something that happened to me that I had absolutely no control over. 
we had a full post-mortem for her as well and there were they couldn't find a reason as to why she died and i found out afterwards that in a majority of cases when people have post-mortems for their babies they don't actually find out a reason and so in a way it was weird because while i was waiting for those results i kept saying to the counselor i just need a reason just need someone to give me a reason or a rationale as to why this has happened because she was fine and i was fine the whole pregnancy and then literally i went into the appointment with the doctor who who i absolutely love her name's briny jones he sat me down and we did she does um kind of aftercare for parents of whose babies have died and she sat me down and she says i'm really sorry i know you really wanted an answer from this post-mortem but unfortunately they haven't been able to come up with a reason as to why this has happened and i i'll never forget this i sat i literally slumped back in the chair Mm. and i think she thought i was probably going to burst into tears or start kicking off or something Mm. i sat back and i I said oh my god it's literally like i've just had this weird epiphany but actually that's probably the best news you could have given me because had you given me a reason i would have then been able to blame somebody and i don't want to live with blame i don't want to blame myself i don't want to blame the sonographer i don't want to blame the midwife or the doctor or anybody Mm. at any point in my pregnancy i don't want to live with that so the fact that you can tell me there's no reason actually in terms of my going forward is Mm. is healthier for me it's not for everybody but it was what actually what i did i realized that i needed to hear because then i didn't have any guilt and there was no blame it was Mm. just something that happened that was beyond anybody's control it was beyond control wow that's amazing lauren yeah because not everybody would have received that news in the same way that you did and i understand why people wouldn't receive that and that's why it's so different for different people but for me that in that moment that was the best news that she could have given me because i would hate to live knowing that oh was it because uh, was it because of something that i my body had done or was it because of something that they hadn't picked up i think yeah. to live with that for me would be even harder yeah. yeah to know that it's almost to know that it could have been prevented yeah with her death it couldn't have been prevented yeah wow and yeah i wanted to, i mean now you are you're about to be well you're literally this week or next week you're going to be appointed um bereavement midwife is this something that exists already or is this something that you've created because <laughs> you're the kind of person who creates things Lauren. <laughs> I wrote it on the list yes <laughs> no, in this country which is oh, it's just awful because as a developed country we have such a high rate of stillbirths and we don't have bereavement midwives to support all of those women that have a stillbirth or miscarriage or medical termination of pregnancy mm-hmm. there aren't enough midwives bereavement midwives in the country to support that and that's and that's a partly sometimes maybe because people don't really want to do the job understandably mm-hmm. but mainly because there's not the funding to offer those positions which mm-hmm. is really sad mm-hmm. so when i had jada there was one bereavement midwife for the whole trust and the trust is two separate hospitals one for two whole hospitals yeah how many how many women this this these this trust this this hospital that i'm at and the hospital together have on average nine thousand births a year so you can imagine the amount of stillbirths that we have and it's also a tertiary unit so we have really high risk pregnancies okay which obviously can increase our risk our our percentage of stillbirths as well because already complications yeah so and then um this amazing midwife her name is jane scott 
she she's like a bit like me she's very into improving things she wants to make things better she won't just sit down idly and watch everything pass by she started a um a bereavement midwife forum so it's for all bereavement midwives in london and the uk really she started mm-hmm. off in london and i went to one of the first meetings and when i sat down and i listened to the other bereavement midwives they were saying well i'm i'm employed to be a bereavement midwife for only one day a week and i was thinking what a bereavement midwife you've only got a bereavement midwife on a monday babies aren't still born only on a monday uh, yeah. like, how does somebody decide what day like it was just crazy to me um and since then they've kind of because of these people all standing up and saying we need more help or we need to do more yeah and the help of celebrities speaking out as well now it's got better so now the trust has a cover for a full-time bereavement midwife at some point every day of the week every well, day monday to friday i think it is um but over those two sites so when i go in that's what i'll be helping with basically mm-hmm. and how i mean actually today lauren as we're having this conversation um a friend a friend of mine on the other side of spain um is being induced uh, she has to give birth to her baby at 22 weeks of pregnancy um, because of complications in the pregnancy and it's no longer viable and so they've chosen to induce and um, and so I feel like today we're this conversation that we're having is is honoring it's yeah. an honor of that friend and her family and we're honoring every single woman who and acknowledging, acknowledging. It's the acknowledgement that's so important and when people and people use this word loss a lot in in terms of baby death and and for a while I used it a lot so I think that's all I was shown but there's so many parents out there that say my baby isn't lost my baby has actually died and exactly. I need to you need to have that recognition so I'm mm. glad that you're doing this for your friend and we it's, it's acknowledging that for her yeah, we need to we need to we need to be able to talk about this. We need to say, yeah, babies die. Yeah. It's not a taboo. It happens yeah. every day. Babies do yeah. die either either before they have reached they've come to the end of those 9 months or or just after or and you know, you 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 work as a midwife. How often like can you give us an idea Lauren because I think there are a lot of people who who aren't aware of how normal it is for perinatal death to occur but it's quite it's quite high it's number high. especially in the UK in my hospital personally sometimes we've had a week where we've had six stillbirths in a week wow sometimes yeah and that's that's, that's a that's lot significant it no, is significant it and is other really hospitals, significant. you might have one or two. So it is, oh, it's, it's awful. And it's something that until you speak to somebody that's gone through it, mm. you're just not aware of it because you don't, you're, you don't, it's not a nice thing to talk about. And why would you want to talk about that? Mm. Mm. Why would you ever think that that could happen to you? I think that was that, what's that, not unconscious bias, but it's something else that defends a woman from while she's pregnant from being able to think that, that the worst could even happen that, that could happen why would you want to think like that unless it's happened to you before in which case then you have that raised level of anxiety and then you're going to be thinking about it more obviously when i work as a doula and um and i and i give the doula contract to 
to the to the couples that I'm going to be working with, I have this um this inner conflict because I put in the contract I put a section about about perinatal death. You know, oh, if if baby dies, I'm still your doula. I'm still going to support you. I'm not going to disappear because I'm just a birth doula. Um, yeah. And then I realised, like, I put it in there and then I took it out. And then I put it back in <laughs> and then I took it out because I suddenly thought, actually, it's hard to know, isn't it? How is this, how is this, just reading this little snippet, how is this going to affect the pregnant mother, you know? Do you know what I think it's about? I think it's about giving people the information. So... Mm. Yeah, it's a very difficult conversation to have. And it's mm. not something that you can force on somebody in that moment. Like, okay, mm. we're going to talk about this right now. Because actually, she might not be in the right mood or frame of mind to talk about that. Mm. But I think if you, if you, it's about signposting people. So when we're giving antenatal care, we say, okay, this is information about breastfeeding, BFI um, with UNICEF. This is information about if you have to be induced. This mm. is information about baby's movements and the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. And when baby becomes ill, this is information about that. So you're you're giving those people the information, that, and that's the most you can do, I think, mm-hmm. because it has to be up to the woman. She's in control of her own pregnancy. She's got to be in control of her own thoughts and mind as well. Yeah, it's up to her to know when is the right time for her to think about those things. Mm-hmm. As long as she is given the information to do that at some point, mm-hmm. I think it's when we we withdraw and we don't give any information because we don't want to just go don't want to talk about it at all that's the completely wrong thing to do mm. so in a contract is it a bad thing to do I don't think it is so because you're that's almost like you giving that little invite to to know let's explore this so that you're aware of these things yeah. but know that I'm here when you do want to talk about it or something goes wrong yeah yeah it's just kind of allowing that space and allowing that option just yeah yes yeah. because yeah. what if you didn't ever talk about it and the woman, every time you saw her, was thinking, I've really got anxiety about this. I really want to talk about it, but I don't want to seem to be weird and paranoid yeah. and all the rest of it. And she never talks about it. So actually, mm. you're giving her an invitation, like you said, an mm. invitation to talk about this when you're ready to talk about mm. it. I'll put it back in the contract then. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> With a little note, when you are ready to talk about this. Yeah we can and if you don't want to that's also fine (laughs) so Lauren I wanted to ask you I mean I know we're running out of time because this is turning into a long conversation Um, but no no please 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 don't say listen I could talk about this for days Sarah that was one of the things that people always say to me what can you do for somebody when they've had a baby that's died and it obviously it's different for everybody but I just needed to talk about her. That's all I needed to do. This is what I was going to ask. Oh, well, there you go. I just read your mind. This is exactly what I was going to ask because I remember I didn't see you when this happened. You know, you were in London. I was in Madrid. Yeah. I didn't see you for a while. And yeah. I think maybe I saw you about six months later and I had no idea, Lauren, what, what to say, say or do. You. I had no idea. And you so courageously you said to me directly Sarah do you want to see a photo of Jada and yeah I said, yes I do yeah because by that point I'd realized that there was it was kind of twofold first of all for, I had to protect myself and my feelings and my counselor said to me you have to be true to yourself if you want to talk about her 
then you talk about her. If you want to show someone a picture, because that's a normal thing to do. I've still had a baby and you yeah. haven't seen her. Yeah. I still want to show you what she looked like. Yeah. I still want the world to see what she looked like. Because yeah. in my head, she existed and she did. Yeah, she did. She does exist. Of course she does. Yeah. yeah. Why wouldn't I want to share that with anybody? So that was the first reason why I showed you that. And the second reason was that I was aware that people were kind of tiptoeing around me, Mm. not knowing whether Mm. or not they should ask about it. Should they talk about it? Should they ask to see her? So I could kind of preempt that knowing you the way I do, Mm. why wouldn't Sarah want to see a picture of her? That's something that's so precious. Why wouldn't she want to see that? So that was the reason. (laughs) Thank you. But so many people oh, did, just did really weird things. Like one of my um, one of my neighbours, she kind of saw me and she crossed the road. She put her head down, and I just felt oh, I felt bad oh. for her because I felt like I had put that burden onto her. Do you know what I mean? Oh no! Like, I felt like oh, even that makes me sad. I felt like, and I, and I did feel like this for a long time that. Like, my mum will tell you that I never really... Not that I don't talk about it or I don't open up, sorry. It's all right, Dan. But I um, I think that I I didn't openly talk about it to people that were really close to me because I didn't want to burden them with my own grief. Mm. I didn't want to make my mum feel sad mm. knowing that how I was really feeling. And so I didn't ever... I didn't go deep with her like she would say to me how are you but like yeah I'm, I'm okay I'm getting on with it but I would never get into a conversation because I knew that if I told her how I was really feeling it would really kill her as well and so when I saw people acting that way towards me it would really break my heart because I would feel like I've caused that pain for them indirectly through her dying and so sometimes that's why I would put on a brave face and sometimes I would just shut away because I'd think, no, I need to deal with this, but I don't want to burden anybody with it. So let me just shut myself away for a little bit. Oh, Lauren. Sorry, I've lost track of what I was That's totally okay. Saying. No. And so what what you act but what you actually needed, what you actually needed was to talk about it. Yeah. And that's what the counsellor said to me. She when um when Jane, the bereavement member, called me and she said, We have these and the counsellor Caroline Wheeland is amazing at the time she was giving free counselling sessions she wasn't getting paid for it and out of some of the money that we raised for Jada's room I said we need to give Caroline some money as a thank you because she's done all these sessions with all these parents for free that's a lot of her time her energy and Mm. not having an income for doing that are so gracious and I'm so grateful to her for ever doing that because she saved me and I remember one day I went there and she she opened the door and she said, you know, you don't actually really need me. She said, but I know that you, she said, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm counselling you because you've got a problem. She said, but it's just because I recognise that you need to talk about her. Mm. And when you come to me, that's all we do. So that's mm. why, I'm, that's why you need me, basically. Mm. It's not because you're not dealing with it. Or it's not because you're not navigating it well. It's purely because you just need to talk about her and when you come here that's what we do it was a safe space to talk about exactly (sighs) so now we do offer counseling all the parents um that have a baby that dies with within my trust and actually with a lot of trust now within within london because of as a result of this briefing forum that jane set up Mm. the midwives all kind of jumped on board with it and so the company is called petals um and they're charity funded 
and they offer uh, bereavement counselling to parents and they also offer counselling in then subsequent pregnancies after the babies have died. So parents can come back to them in a new pregnancy because obviously the, those anxieties are raised now even more. Yeah, They now have that ability to have that counselling as well and I think it's so important to have the counselling. Definitely. Oh yeah, I just can't even begin to imagine the journey, you know, the emotional... Uh, do you know what? There was a really good book that I read called Levels of Life by Julian Barnes. Mm. And in this book, this book, I'll never forget it. I was sitting on Brook Green in West London mm. and it was a really sunny day and I just had a moment to myself. And I took this book that my mum had given me from her work. She works for a literary agent and he was one of their um, um, clients. Mm. And I read this passage and it was the book is about one of the chapters is about him grieving the death of his wife. And in part of the book, it said. He was, he was sitting there and he was thinking, why am I, I'm grieving for somebody that's not here. And it's almost like, I, I started to think about this and I was like, I'm grieving for Jada because she's not here and I'm grieving for a life that has been wasted. Mm. So does it make logical sense to me to now waste my life as well, just mm. sitting in grief? And even, and I realised that in my grief, I don't have to be stagnant. I can be progressive mm. and I can be positive with it and use it for good. Well, that's what you've done. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, I mean, at times, obviously it is, and I, I get into a little hole and I don't come out for a week. But generally speaking, yeah. if I change my attitude towards a situation and I make that grief a positive thing, mm. then that, that's what's helped me. That's why you're my hero, Lauren. Oh, stop. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just, you're just mind blowing. I mean, and the thing, the thing with grief is it never goes away. No. It, it never goes away. Don't ever put a time on it. So we can't just sit, we can't just sit in it and say, okay, this, I'm just going to wait until it finishes because it doesn't. Doesn't. It just changes. That's all it is. It just, it changes. It changes. It doesn't ever go away. It doesn't go away. I set myself up for a fall when I, when I first, when she first died, and somebody said, somebody said to me something about time. In a couple of years, you'll be okay. And then when that two-year anniversary came, I literally felt like such a failure because I, I felt like I hadn't got any better. Oh, no. And then I realised that actually, that it, that isn't the right way to think about it. You just have to think about it as it's an ongoing thing that changes. And some, some years. I'm absolutely fine. I can plan what I'm going to do for anniversary and we treat it like a birthday. And then, uh, and then five years anniversary, I absolutely collapsed. Yeah. So you just have to go with whatever you're feeling in that moment. Yeah. One of my friends, when, when my sister Anna died, one of my friends said this beautiful thing. He said, Sarah, grief, grief comes in waves. Grief is like the sea. Firstly, yeah. it's massive. Firstly, yeah. it's huge. Secondly, it has waves. And sometimes the waves are massive big storm waves and they keep coming and they keep coming and they crash down on you and you can't breathe and it's so intense and there's nothing else. And then other times it's just soft. The, the sea is calm and the soft is gentle and you can keep going and you can navigate and you never know when another big yeah, wave is hell of a wave is going to come back and crash down on you. And that is just what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, hor it's horrible to think like that, isn't it? That out of nowhere, something can just come and overtake you. But my, the way that I deal with that now is like my counsellor said, 
deal with every moment as it is yeah. don't preempt and think oh i'm gonna she said yes you can make plans you can do whatever else but in that time when it happened just think i'm just gonna ride it this is what's happening i'm just gonna get on with it yeah and not trying to force yourself out of it or force yourself in it just be just be what it is yeah exactly allow it yeah we have because that's part of the process isn't it yeah allowing you to deal allowing you to go through all those emotions yeah that's part of the process unfortunately yeah i i i feel like as a society well as a as a western well where west of where as a western in this european society um (laughs) we've got a lot of work to do around grief like around accepting it and integrating it and not separating it from life yes because death and hiding it away and hiding it away yeah because death is a part of life and then they're not two separate things like if we're grieving it doesn't mean that we have to yeah um cut off everything else that's going on in our lives no we need to find a way to 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 balance them both yeah to balance them to integrate them both and allow these two things to coexist yeah because because that is the nature of life and death you know they coexist oh lauren thank you so much for sharing your story do you know what you know what i'd love you to do on another podcast on sorry is a dad's perspective of it because dad's um dad's it's a well-known fact that dads do not talk about stillbirth there's not much awareness about the dad's feelings um and it would be interesting to see to have a bit more of awareness raised for dads i think and for grandparents and the people, it, you know, there's so much awareness about mothers and stillbirth, but we don't really talk about extended family members, other children or dads or grandparents, aunties, best friends that have actually gone through it all as well. Mm. Everybody's, everybody's grieved that baby. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's not just yeah. me. Oh, Laura, and that just shows what, what a big heart you have. Thank you so much for actually bringing that into the space. Yeah, you're right. We need to, we need to, to talk with dads dads need to be able to 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 share all their what they're experiencing as well and yeah like you say all the other members of the family this is the other thing isn't it grief is is it everybody it's a it's a um, how do I want to say this (laughs) everybody connects with it it's not something that happens to one person it's shared it's a shared experience even though everybody has their individual experience of that grief like it affects everybody yeah oh yeah thank you for naming that lauren thank you okay i I have a dad he just popped into my head i might ask him there you go there you go (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure he'd love well i hope he would like to be asked to talk about it because like you said, it's acknowledging your friend today, but mm. it's also acknowledging all those people that kind of are the unsung people of stillbirths yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, darling. Let's call it a day, shall we? <laughs> we cry anymore. Oh, bless you. And I hope your friend's okay. Yeah. Well, it's not going to be okay. Let's be honest about it. But I hope that she finds a way to be okay. That's what I mean she's she has a lot of emotional tools and she's very in contact with her own needs so 
she's already kind of briefed us all on what she thinks she needs and how that may yeah. change and so we're all just yeah. we're all just there like red if she needs us she needs us if she doesn't she doesn't if she wants to talk that, you know what? that's the best thing that's exactly what my friends did to me mm. it was like they were just on call if I needed it they would be there but they would never say we're going to come around at two o'clock because actually no Lauren might not want us to be there at all they were just mm. like if you need us you call us yeah yeah <sighs> thank you Lauren and thank you so much for all the work that you are doing and if if there are any people listening to this that feel um moved to reach out for help like if they're not getting the support they do need support where can we like if you're in england where can we direct these people Right. so many in england and a lot of these a lot of these places that are now available to people for reference is is out of a result of people having their own babies that have died that have set up charities so obviously okay. there's places like sans there's bliss um, the miscarriage association um tommy's is really good for information about um miscarriages and stillbirths as well they mm -hmm. do a lot of research into it too if you're interested in that um, but there's other um, things like a place called uh, a charity called Aching Arms um, for Louie. There's an amazing charity if anybody does want to donate called Remember My Baby. And they take these really beautiful pictures of babies when they have died that you would never get the chance to ever have again. And they're completely free. Mm, they're wow. really, really good company. They're amazing. And I wish they'd been around when I had Jada. I always yeah. say that to, to them. Mm. Um, but if you, if you look on any of those sites, a lot of the time they'll give you other places that you can look at as well. Because we yeah. all work together. It's not just a singular thing. Yeah, Stans yes. will always give you other places that you can go to as well. Okay, it's a connected support network. Yeah. Okay, and for anybody who's listening who's based in Madrid, there is an association called Uma Manita. Um, they're on Facebook. I think the webpage is umamanita.es, I think. <laughs> but I'll put that in the in the podcast notes, in the episode notes. Ah. <sighs> Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Sarah. That was like therapy for me. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs>